1: Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. And with us today is uh, Eric Taliakotso, who is John Stambo Professor of History at Cornell University. He's the author of monographs on the history of smuggling and the history of the Hajj. His current focus on the history of the sea, about which he recently published in Asian Waters, Oceanic Walls from Yemen to Yokohama, published by Princeton University Press in 2022. And today we'll be talking about an edited volume, edited by Professor Talia Kotso, and also by uh, Professor David Powers, who is Professor of Islamic Studies at Culinary University. Islamic Acumen uh, Comparing Muslim Societies, published by Cornell University Press this year in 2023. Welcome, Eric, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk about Islamic Acumen. Thank you so much for having me, Ahmed. First, we would like to learn uh, about the individuals behind these monographs. So, can you please start us off by saying a few words about yourself, uh, where you went to school, how you became interested? and studying the theme of uh, the Islamic Ummah and the Islamic Ecumen at large.
0: Sure. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, I went to a a small liberal arts college called Haverford College outside Philadelphia, Uh, and uh, I studied uh, actually Chinese history there uh, and uh, got quite interested in Asia uh, generally, but also uh, China specifically. I was taking Chinese language there for a number of years, And when I graduated, I was very lucky to get a something called the Thomas Watson Fellowship. And they give about, I think, 60 or 70 of these out a year across North America to graduating seniors from small liberal arts colleges. And I was lucky to be able to spend a year uh, talking to uh, spice and marine goods traders in both the Indian Ocean and the South China Sea in the basins of both of these bodies of water. And uh, so I started to get interested in kind of wider questions of uh, transoceanic contact in Asia. And that kind of eventually led me to graduate school. A few years later, I went to Yale to study Southeast Asian history because Southeast Asia ended up being kind of the linchpin between these two bodies of water. And uh, I wrote a, a thesis there at Yale about the history of smuggling in colonial Southeast Asia. But one of the things I got interested in Uh, As I was doing that work, which eventually became my first book, was also uh, how Islam was seen by the colonizers uh, who were coming to Southeast Asia and often seen as something transmitting things against the wishes of these colonial states. So that was the smuggling aspect. But then there was, of course, this religious aspect, and that became a second book on the history of the Hajj uh, from Southeast Asia to Mecca from earliest times to the present. Uh, and this volume is a continuation of some of those interests that have sprouted off into a couple of different uh, edited volumes.
1: Amazing! And uh, your career and uh, your erudite say take on the field really shows. And uh, selecting these excellent chapters and putting them together to explore the concept of Islamic ecumen. But let's first talk about what do we mean by Islamic acumen, considering the shared practices, beliefs, and community bonds among Muslims. Is there a definitive Islamic ecumen that we can talk about?
0: That's a very interesting question, and uh, it's a kind of $20,000 question, right, uh, what they used to say in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, I, I would say, I think there's likely not one definitive ecumen, uh, but maybe multiple overlapping conceptions of of an Islamic ecumen by the Ummah, by the community of believers. Um, but, you know, what exactly this would be, I think, would be different in in the eyes of different beholders uh, in the religion. And, and maybe even different, again, from the outside, from people who are not Muslims. Um, so just for an example, what about those who are born Muslim but don't don't kind of engage in everyday practice of Islam with the with the prayers or with Ramadan uh, at a at a particular time of year, etc or only partially do so. Uh, I think there's a number of examples of uh, um, things like this that we might call shading where people consider themselves to be Muslims but um, have varying degrees of participation in the active, Uh, um, institutions that form Islam as a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly religion. And this is in common with all religions, I think, right? We would say this, see the same thing across Christianity, across Judaism, across Hinduism. Uh, uh, So it's not something that's particular to an Islamic ecumen.
1: Uh, Right. Uh, Both of you, uh, both of the editors in this case, uh, work beyond the framework of the nation state, whether that's North Africa and the Sahara world, or the Indian Ocean world. Uh, Drawing from your uh, regional expertise, how does the volume explore the organizational matrices of common Muslim affiliation and societies scattered across the globe? Uh, In what ways does this uh, volume challenge the idea of a singular Islamic identity while still asserting a unity or a sense of unity among diverse Muslim societies?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Abend. I, I mean, I think the Ummah is global, but it is also national in important ways, right? I mean, you can imagine Muslims saying we are all Muslims and belong to the same community, to the same Ummah. But we Algerian Muslims perform the Hajj together as a group uh, every year to go to Mecca and Medina and the, and the holy uh, sites of the Arabian desert. And Indonesians perform their Hajj separately, uh, so they are doing the same things or many of the same things, but they are performing them separately as national communities as well. Uh, and, and as part of these particular um, parties that go to the Hijaz together so. You know, another way to think of this is through media, for example, uh, newspapers, which which can and uh, can be and are read across national spaces, but also sometimes across transnational spaces that link Islamic communities, you know, Arabic, of course, is one of the ways to see this happening but there are actually other languages that could be seen in this way too among muslim societies and movies or film other kinds of media are viewed across national matrices as well so there are some some different uh matrices like this there are also shared features people you know uh, perform the obligations that they have during ramadan across all of these muslim societies but they may be observed slightly differently, for example, in a place like Yemen, as opposed to a place like Indonesia, where uh, some of the practices of Ramadan might be a little bit different, although many of them and the main ones might be the same.
1: You've touched on this, but I would like to elaborate more on how do internal and external negotiations uh, influence what it means for a society to be Islamic or more Islamicate, Uh, Can you elaborate uh, on the dynamic nature of religious identity among Muslims as depicted in the volume?
0: Sure. Uh, I think many societies in in David and my volume are only partially Muslim. And that's one of the things that's kind of interesting about getting this assemblage of 22 authors together. the, I think these chapter authors as a collectivity kind of query that line across time and space. And if you read their contributions uh, together and uh, Toto as a, as a whole, you really see what some of those negotiations are and how how they change over time. So how Islamic does a society need to be to to be considered an Islamic society? Uh, that might be another way of, of putting it. It's almost a kind of tautological query for us to consider. But I think we see some of the answers, though, in the kind of institutions that are brought up in the volume, right? And this is how we split some of these uh, ideas that were coming back from the various chapter authors, through politics, through legal frameworks, through slavery, for example, uh, through Islamic education. for, For Just as an example, that last one on education, you can see in the volume that Pakistan might be considered a more Muslim society than the Philippines, uh, based on what we saw from uh, the authors in this volume, uh, at least in some ways. But parts of the Philippines, you know, in particular places like Marawi, where we have a chapter, um, are quite Muslim, and uh, would feel that this is a regional Muslim society, even if it's not a national Muslim society like Pakistan. So I think all of those things are happening at the same time, and uh, kind of really shade the meanings of what it means for a society to be Islamic or Islamicate.
1: Indeed. Uh, And coming from the Indian Ocean World studies, uh, the volume takes a a comparative approach to analyzing Muslim societies. And in your career, you've attempted many connected histories. Uh, so, what are the advantages of this approach in understanding the cultural affiliations and differences across these societies? Uh, in other words, how does this uh, interdisciplinary approach involve, involving various disciplines like anthropology, history, and political science, among others, contribute to understanding Muslim societies as a cultural community? Thanks, Amit. That's a that's a really good question. Um...
0: And look, you know, uh, people might feel differently about this, but I think the Ummah appears differently in different historical periods, for example, uh, and that the definition of what constitutes a Muslim society can change. And it's really up to the beholders uh, of these societies, the the adherents of these societies to kind of make those definitions. But using different uh, disciplines is something that we explicitly wanted to do in the volume. Uh, We didn't want this to just be uh, uh, a volume of historians or anthropologists or sociologists, et cetera. Uh, By kind of changing the the lens of different disciplinary lenses with each of the different chapters as we move through the book, uh, I think we gain certain things. So just as an example, anthropologists, have their own notions of comparative approaches, right, that are are a little bit different than what historians might do or people from different disciplines. So we think here, for example, of Geertz's famous Islam Observed, right, where he's looking at um, Morocco and Indonesia as poles of Islam across, uh, across this very large space of the Ummah from all the way in northwest Africa all the way to southeast Asia. And by tacking across these disciplines, we're kind of allowing several of these to be represented here in the works of various authors. We try to have a valence across disciplines so that multiple vantages can be represented. And multiple approaches can be used, so the answers that you get from you taking these kinds of approaches look different through the eyes of an ethnographer than they do through the eyes of a political scientist. And we have uh, members of both of those academic tribes in these in these in this volume. And it would be different again in the eyes of an architectural historian uh, uh, from a sociologist. So again, we have members of those tribes as well. Uh, and by trying to kind of uh, frame these different questions across these different di- across these different disciplines we're trying to basically get at some of these answers and to think of them in ways that make sense across time and space so all different kinds of questions in viewing these uh comparisons become relevant
1: right and once you have all of these different approaches and geographies coming together in one volume you might see these patterns and connections even if you attempted just a, you know a comparison and uh, the richness of the volume cannot really be covered in this podcast, and I encourage the listeners to pick it up and explore the nine parts of this volume. And I'm going to read the titles of these parts, because if I would read the title, that would take us to another hour of a podcast. So starting with one, part one, ethics, uh, moral rectitude, and education. Two, colonial encounters and post-colonial aftermaths. Three, colonialism and slavery, the Ummah below the winds. Four, religion, politics, race, and identity. Five, walls, architecture, and the other. Six, representing Muslims, poetry, film, and news media. Seven, music, art, and the nation. Eight, translation, modernization, and culture. And last but not least, remembering and forgetting the debt. So let's talk about the organization of his parts. How deliberate was the selection and arrangement of chapters to emphasize, uh, again, comparisons across time and space in Muslim societies?
0: Yeah, that's a a good question, too. Um, I think I can say fairly that it was quite deliberate. Uh, It took David and I quite some time to settle on the architecture and the groupings. and after we got our referees reports in, we changed them around to following some of the advice that we received, um, from our referees reports. So we wanted to look across certain rubrics that we saw as commonly practiced across the Umma though, uh, that was important to us. And hence some of these categories that, uh, you mentioned Ahmed, um, ethics and education, uh, the colonial encounter, slavery race and identity architecture the arts broadly construed translation uh even death as we get to the end of the volume so we were trying to kind of basically fine-tune who should be in what rubric and you know and 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 why and that actually took us a while and we had uh an evolution of our thoughts about that and we ended up moving some of the chapters around a little bit um, and asking for certain things in the revised draft but we think it ended up we hope it at least that it ended up being about right in the end the placements because we wanted to look across a number of different uh rubrics to try to get at these larger questions about uh, uh islam in the world
1: and it's really effective uh and i would like to think more about periodization here um, how did the colonial period and subsequent post-colonial transi- transitions shape the identity and practices of Muslim communities uh, worldwide? Uh, what, nois- what nuances emerge in the comparative analysis of the effects of colonial subjugation and post-colonial liberation?
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, well, we you know we took a few examples here. For example, uh, the Philippines. Uh, Colonial Anjouan and Zanzibar in the southwest Indian Ocean, uh, Algeria in the Maghreb, uh, coastal Kenya on the Swahili coasts of East Africa. So broadly, our authors were trying to show how invasive the colonial experience was in some ways and in reordering societies and and the kind of priorities of the Ummah. So, for example, here, the French were much stronger in Algeria in these practices down to naming practices, uh, which one of our authors uh, uh, shows, Benjamin Brower of the University of Texas at Austin. So that was the kind of influence of French really uh, kind of going into the roots of Algerian society. In some ways, Algerian Muslim society down to even the naming of, of things. This is much more true, I think, than what the Spanish were able to achieve in the southern Philippines, for example. But some of the same issues are at play. They're trying to both of these kind of colonial administrations are trying to control and administer subaltern Muslim life. And they're trying to do this basically to the advantage of the colonists. So they're trying to do this through names and naming both of, of people, of places, of institutions. They're trying to do this through censuses. They're trying to do this through um, the laying down and concluding of external treaties between Muslim societies and non-Muslim entities. So all of this is happening at the same time across multiple landscapes and across the world in some societies that are Muslim predominant, um, and in some societies that are only partially Muslim. And one of the things that the volume does is to try to look at across all of these spaces and look across time
1: and see how some of these uh, outcomes were different in different societies. And in thinking about cultural interactions such as economic exchanges and interreligious contact, how does that influence the way Muslim societies define and, and perceive themselves? Can we think about it in a contact zone, and if you can provide examples from the chapters of how identity formation has been impacted in various historical and geographic contexts?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, one of the good examples that emerged from the volume in, in terms of that, I think, is the Ottoman Translation Bureau, uh, which was studied in our book by Mehmet Tarak of NYU. Um, and he looked at the way, you know, the, ch- the changes in the way Ottoman society evolved as the Bureau took in all sorts of foreign language. So uh, through this Ottoman Translation Bureau, different things were coming in and out of Ottoman society to the rest of the world. And that's one of the things that was actually the raison d'etre of, of this particular article in the volume by Mehmet. Uh, and that was really instructive, I thought. Uh, Another example were the tombstones studied by uh, Felipe Lopez-Lazaro in the Western Mediterranean, vis-a-vis both both Muslim and Catholic rulers in places like Iberia and the Maghreb. So he saw uh, a lot of osmosis on view of kind of self-presentation and the amalgamation of knowledge and styles and usages from the outside in tombstones of both Muslim Catholic Muslim and Catholic rulers in the Western uh, Mediterranean. Uh, And that maybe shouldn't surprise us because this Muslim ecumen was and is situated in between Christendom and kind of Hinduism and Buddhism geographically in the world. There are many examples of these sorts of borrowings going on uh, in both ways, in both directions. You know, we can think of lots of different things that would figure in this, numbers, positional notation, architecture, as seen in the volume in in several different studies in in our book, uh, et, et cetera.
1: Indeed, and thinking about ways, not just uh, Muslims uh, happening to be, uh, they say, the majority or in power, but also in the diaspora context, what challenges arise in the process of translation and cultural adaptation uh, in the diaspora context, if you can draw an example of that?
0: Um, well, for one, I mean representation, right? Um, uh, if we think about uh, we can see artistic form in other traditions, for, for example, that allow the, the presentation of prophets, but that obviously cannot be done in Islam, only in very rare cases as this happened in Islamic societies over over time. So things have changed to allow representation of an idea, but in a in a kind of a different idiom. Right, So I'm just thinking in our volume, Jeremy Prestholt uh, of UC San Diego in his chapter on the Swahili coasts shows how the East African literal adopted all sorts of things from the Gulf, from India, from other places, both Muslim and non-Muslim uh, ideas and influences coming from the outside in making up this amalgam of what we might now call Swahili culture. So it's indigenous, but it is also uh, uh, influences coming from the outside. Another example from the volume would be Farina Mir of the university of Michigan showing much of the same, I think with Urdu, um, ethics, literature or akhlaq, right? It has Persian and Arabic precedents, but also elements that are clearly much more local in origin and development. So we can see that in, in both of these places, uh, uh, to, to try to answer your question.
1: There is so much to cover, but unfortunately, we are on the tyranny of time. And as a way of wrapping up, uh, moving to the end of the volume, uh, which mentions the complexity of Muslim cultural practices relating to death. And I would like to use this part to think about the bigger picture that emerges from Islamic ecumen. Uh, Could you please elaborate on how these practices reflect both local uh, singularity and global connectivity across Muslim societies?
0: Sure. Yes. I mean, you know, as I said just a few moments ago, I I think uh, Felipe Lopez-Lazaro shows how these tombstones in the Western Mediterranean really had a lot of overlap in how rulers were presented to the living after they died, both in Islam and in Christendom. So it's a shared space and different faiths. But certain commonalities coming out of that uh uh out of that space, which I think is really fascinating. And, and that's one of the advantages of having uh, uh studies like this in the volume, is that we can see that that shared commonality in a place like the Western Mediterranean, both across uh Iberia and parts of the of the uh, the Maghreb. Um another example from the volume is Nancy Um of the Getty Museum. She shows how Yemeni. Uh, Burial practices in Mocha reflect both indigenous Yemeni burial practices, but also take into account the flow of people who are coming through these Tihama coasts for coffee during the early modern era. And she's also not just looking at that uh, 17th century uh, heyday of places like Mocha, but also looking at much more recent developments there as well into our own time, into in, in the late 20th and early 21st centuries, a time when Yemen has been really troubled. So nothing in the volume is static, not even burials that end our lives, right? Uh, but because burial is the last act in most people's lives, if they, if they have a burial, we wanted to have a sub-rubric specifically on this, both the burial itself and how it is seen and how it has evolved in particular societies across the Ummah.
1: Right, and it's amazing how, you know, death sites became so productive in Indian Ocean history that we find these tombstones connecting Yemen to Gujarat, to Southeast Asia, and back to the Hejaz. So uh, it's an amazing job that you have accomplished in bringing all these authors together and listening to the fact that there are nine parts uh, the listeners might think the book is a thousand pages, but it's not. <laughs> the chapters are quite succinct uh, and they are very useful, uh, whether you want an introduction to a certain location and period and theme, or you wanted a comparative uh, you know, approach to thinking about these themes in different places. Um, and about that, uh, who do you hope will read Islamic Ecumen and what sort of impact would you like it to have uh, both within the scholarly community, but also in the classroom and beyond?
0: Yeah, great. Thank you, Ahmed. I I, I mean, look, I think David and I hope many people will, will read it like all uh, authors or editors. We hope uh, all the effort that went into this book uh, by these 22 different scholars will have a good audience across multiple reading publics, uh, you know, scholars, students, uh, educated people who just want to know about Islam in the world. Um, you know, unfortunately, we live in a moment where there's lots of misinformation about Islam in the world, and that's um, uh, especially right now as we're doing this podcast. Um, so we hope that this volume shows Islam in a, in a favorable light, uh, its diversity, uh, the patterns of cross-fertilization and inspiration that connect Muslim societies uh the development of the Ummah as a kind of a, a unified but also as a particular field of exchange between human beings both historically and now in in terms of religion in terms of art in terms of ethics in terms of practice we're we're really uh, together as a as an ensemble of 24 different people 22 uh authors and uh two editors we're really trying to highlight that complexity and show how the lives of roughly a billion people—that's a billion with a B—intersect and overlap, mm-hmm. uh, but are also distinct in in really interesting and wonderful ways. And if that comes across to the people who end up reading this volume, I think we'll be we'll be very happy.
1: Thank you for bringing this volume. Uh, to to us, and now that we have this volume, uh, we we like to ask this question, although it's not fair, the book just came out, but is there anything you're working on now or hope to work on in the future, whether uh, it's your own uh, research or bringing collective uh, collaboration like this again?
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm working on taking a rest. Uh, That's one of the first things I'm working on uh, right now. It's taking a little bit of a rest as we get to the end of term right now. It's uh, mid-December so it's been a long a long semester and a long year um, But yeah, I have a number of different uh, projects going forward, um, uh, a new book and also several edited volumes. so I'm hoping to to get to work on uh, some of those when I can. and uh, But I'm very happy that this volume is finally out. It took a long time for it to kind of go through its evolution uh, for the two of us and involving all of these different authors. When you have uh, 22, 24 people all together doing a book, it, it can take quite a long time. And this book did take quite a long time. So we're just very glad that it's now out and seeing the light of day.
1: Amazing. That's like putting out a couple of uh, special issues. <laughs> so you... Mm-hmm. You've given us your volume in Asian Asian waters and now Islamic acumen along with uh, your co-editor, David Powers. Thank you so much for giving us the time to explore the volume. And I highly encourage the listeners to pick it up and explore its different chapters and parts. And uh, today we explored Islamic acumen, comparing Muslim societies, published by Cornell University Press in 2023. This is your host, Ahmed El mazmi Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.